0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news and media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz.
1: And I'm Alex Zitner. This week on Media Business Matters, Amanda's written, well, it's not exactly a book, but... It's it's, a short book. Yeah, it's a short book, and so we're talking about that. If you're a Firewall and Iceberg fan, you can think of this as the Buy My Book podcast, where we're going to talk about Amanda's new book on one of our favorite subjects, portals. So Amanda, tell us a little bit more about portals and kind of why you wrote it, kind of what led you to the decision to write this book.
0: So the full title, Portals, A Treatise on Internet Distributed Television, is really the first place that I've publicly claimed portals as what we should call these entities that exist. Some people call them platforms, others have called them apps. I'd say most technically they are internet distributed television services, but that's kind of unwieldy. To put it, basically, we're talking about Netflix and those other television and film delivery services that we access using the internet. Why the book? I think it's been percolating around in my head for a while. I'm in the process still of writing another book that's a chronology that tells the story of how television has changed over the last two decades, from 1996 to 2016. And in the process of getting into the the last part of that book, really from 2010 to the present, I had to dive a little bit deeper than the conversation that I was having in that book, and that that book I'm targeting to more of a general audience. Uh, But I needed to really figure out what Internet distributed television is in order to succinctly describe how that part of the story fit together, and and in the process, I ended up with this somewhat uh, business scholarship, somewhat media studies scholarship effort to explain the role of portals in the current television business place.
1: Well, you say that book is targeted more toward... uh, Or your other book is targeted more toward a general audience. Who's the target for portals?
0: So I think it's it's not... It's not for my mom. Um, It's not probably for the lay television uh, watcher. Um, It might be for the media business matters listener um, in the sense that I'm talking about things like business models, about technology, and trying to understand what is different about what portals are um, in comparison to something like a channel or a network and in relation to all we, we know so much about strategies for channels and schedules and what they do uh, and we just don't have any of those conceptual ideas for internet distributed television and so if that is what you're interested in or you're curious about then portals might be a good read.
1: Yeah I mean you're really just trying to break down this thing that we've seen pop up and When I was reading it, it's a lot of just explaining these concepts that some of which have come up on our podcast and some of which, you know, we've heard before. It's just, you know, you're putting it plainly in words on the page.
0: Right. So a lot of conceptualization and a lot of vocabulary since we're in early days. And I think the biggest surprise in the the course of doing the research for the book books, um, I, I really expected that once I went looking for it, I would find... Uh, some literature, a scholarship on subscriber-funded media. But as I looked into it, I think probably because HBO, even though it's an entity that has been with us since the mid-'70s, it's always been such a small part of the television ecosystem, and because it has always aligned itself or imagined itself more as connected not to television but to film, there just really isn't a body of... Scholarship that has explored this different way of paying for media and why it matters.
1: Yeah, I mean, you really are talking about an entirely new thing here, and you break these portals down into a couple of different categories, and even more categories below that. Like, you talk about kind of the advertiser model versus the subscription model, and in the subscription model, there's... You know, you call them conglomerated niches and even just more generic niche products. Let's kind of go back to the top here. And at the end of your intro, you thanked Louis C.K. for yep. inspiration. Why?
0: Because of Horace and Pete, um, and I've read a number of interviews with CK about Horace and Pete. Similarly to, I think, on some level, his aspiration, which was to play with the possibility of new forms of distribution. Uh, that's one of the things that I'm doing with this book that is about new forms of distribution. So the book is going is available not only as a book uh, at Amazon or as an ebook at Amazon, but also is available open access at mazebooks.org for those. <clears throat> Subtle plug. Well, <laughs> but it, it's, true. it's for free. You, it is, you know, yeah. You might as well go and take a look at it. Uh, and so part of this comes back to, I've been writing about digital distribution of media now for oh uh, as long as there's been digital distribution of media. <laughs> and even though I write about television, the, the medium, my chosen medium is is not video. I, I, I cannot join the YouTubers who are out there making product and, and circulating it in different ways. I write. And so I wanted to, at the same time that I was writing about some of these issues, I wanted to play with digital distribution of print. And, and that's what I'm doing with the book and... Uh, C.K.'s bold step was an aspiration.
1: Ah, interesting. Speaking of Louis Louis C.K., louisck.net, I think it is, is an entire thing on its own. And can we call this a portal? I mean, it's not necessarily a single thing being put up there. I mean, Horace and Pete is the only major scripted show, but he's also put (laughs) comedy specials from himself and others on that website. It's not subscriber-based, and it's Mm transactional-based. And in your book, you actually say you're not necessarily going to talk about transactional-based sites like Mm -hmm. iTunes, for example. So I guess kind of boiling that down into a question, it's like, how do transactional-based sites like louisck.com fit into the model that you're talking about in your book?
0: So certainly I would agree that uh, louisck.net is a portal um, for exactly the reasons that you note. Part of what I wanted to do with this book and, and the nature of its publication, it's moved very quickly into press um, because I wanted to to catch the moment that we're currently in mm-hmm. and to really start a scholarly conversation on the topic. Um, well, what
1: is there in this moment that you wanted to catch?
0: To explain, or to, to establish some of this okay. vocabulary and to begin conceptualizing. Uh, so at this point You're right. The book doesn't talk a lot about any other transactional portals, partly because they aren't defining the business right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, subscriber-funded portals are defining the business. At the end of 2015, for example, there were almost 100 portals in the marketplace. 76 of them were subscriber-funded. And so in my mind, the thing that conversations were missing in this run to understand this new technological feature of of Internet distribution was missing the fact that at the same time, it's not just that services such as Netflix are Internet distributed, but also that they have a different business model and that different business model encourages the production of different kind of texts it encourages different strategies and so really what i wanted to do the, the part of the conversation that i really wanted to get out there right away was the need to be considering both technology and business model as we begin to understand these these new formations
1: well it's also well everything on the internet has to be based on some sort of technology right I mean, there's all, there's some, for every, you know, television mind sitting in a room making programming here, there's a programmer who has to either execute that vision or, you know, kind of come up with new ways. You know, I wonder if it was the programmers who came up with these algorithms. And let's talk about kind of the technological aspects and the organization of content on different portals. You know, different portals have different ways of organizing the content, like HBO tends to be more what HBO thinks is important, you know, Though it'll put the new episodes at the top, whereas Netflix is completely algorithmically based here. What did you learn about how these sh- shows that are on these portals are presented to viewers during your research?
0: Really what I wanted to do was begin to identify the lines that we should continue on in terms mm. of that research. So Um, One of the big challenges is that a lot of the algorithms are black boxed. And so we can identify as users, you know, sort of what our experience is with different uh, technologies, but really to know what information the different services are focusing on, what they're doing with it, for the most part, a lot of that isn't known.
1: We have no idea what data Netflix is collecting on us. Just, I guess the safe assumption is every portal is collecting everything it possibly can.
0: That sounds like a good assumption. And so, I mean, what I'm really doing in terms of the book is is thinking about what these portals are doing in relation to what something like a channel or a network has done, continues to do, because, you, know, you you said earlier that these things are entirely new, and, and I think part of, actually, this is a response to that perception, and everything isn't entirely new. Everything has some sort of precursor and that there's been a bit of a tendency in this run to internet-distributed television to assume we know nothing, and so, you know, it's on one hand, I want to temper you know and identify the points of continuity with the past, of the ideas we already know, you know what can we still use, and at the same time, also identify, well, what things are new? And so what different things do we need to look at? And how do we need to consider aspects of the television business and what it's trying to do, or what the portals are trying to do, and recognize that we can't continue to use the same logics the same measures of success and things that we pull over from broadcast and cable distribution
1: and i think a part of that is you know just talking about how many different kinds of portals there are and what different kinds of portals they are Um, because we have more specific and targeted portals like noggin and wwe but we also have more general (laughs) kind of collection services i'm thinking about netflix amazon hulu even CBS All Access, to a certain extent, is a range of programming. So where do you think the difference in these types of portals lie? Does one maybe have a particular advantage to succeed in this space?
0: So importantly here, we're talking all about subscriber-funded portals. And so exactly. the thing that's different about subscriber-funded portals is that you have to pay for them. And so one of the things I started with was looking at what is the value proposition that these different services are offering in order to encourage payment. And so in the cases of the more narrowly targeted ones that you mentioned, uh, WWE Network, Noggin, many of them have adopted a strategy that looks very similar to what cable channels have done in terms of targeting a very narrow and precise audience and serving up programming that's more programming or with more focus than that audience would be able to get otherwise so that's okay. that's one proposition like we you have this passion you will pay for it we will serve it yeah, mm-hmm. so that's new honestly one of the biggest questions that and drove this research for a long time, and, and it was finally one day that the skies parted, and you know, I had, honestly, it felt like an epiphany, um, was this question of, what is Netflix brand? And others have taken this on, and I've read lots of articles, and none of them have were satisfactory. And so I, I just kept thinking and thinking on this and trying to understand, again, from the outside. Because I, and unfortunately, I have no Netflix interviews as part of the research. But Netflix executives do say things in public. Um, and I managed to <laughs> gather enough of those pieces to begin to put something together. Mm-hmm. Now, the listeners to Media Business Matters may not be the best audience to run this experiment on because given interest in this podcast might also suggest a sort of similar entertainment interest. So it might be that to all those listening that we all have the same perception of what the Netflix brand is. And part of that, or a very important part of that, is that Netflix can have different brands to different people precisely because it is internet distributed.
1: Well, and also because it's algorithmically based. They can suggest, you know, one of the things you talk about in your book is they can suggest completely different packages of content to different people. Like they might suggest to me, oh, you liked Orange is the New Black, well here's our, some other critically acclaimed shows, like maybe you'll like Stranger Things, maybe you'll like Sense8, where they can suggest to maybe someone who's watched some of the multicamps that comes on there, hey, here's this new Adam Sandler movie we have, you know, let's go and bring it out there.
0: Right, and so so there isn't a Netflix brand, and that's where you mentioned it before, the notion of conglomerated niches, yes. and that's what I'm calling the strategy that entities such as Netflix, arguably probably Amazon as Mm -hmm. well. Hulu is sort of a different thing. We can talk about Hulu separately in a minute. Um, It probably fits better in the CBS All Access conversation. Um, But both at at Amazon and Netflix, I think we can imagine them as recognizing they're trying to gain scope over those narrow, niche-targeted, portals by combining a bunch of different niches right so noggin programming for preschoolers if you don't have program if you don't have a preschooler you will never subscribe to noggin there is no reason no (laughs)
1: that's just not gonna happen okay
0: (laughs) so another way that you can make money instead of being by the the one thing that this passionate group wants is by achieving scale and that's definitely what netflix has been after and so i've found an interview um, that was reported by another scholar who was interviewing someone in Amazon Video who explained that they had two different targets in mind when they were designing programming, one for the NPR audience and one the Comic-Con audience. And so you can begin to think of those as, as distinct psychographics. And if you begin to think about the programming library, Uh, It's not that when Netflix or Amazon designs a program for their large subscriber base that they're trying to come up with programming that will appeal to that whole subscriber base, but that they have conceptualized them let's say in in different pockets and that they try each year or every so months to provide every so many months to provide a show for each bucket mm-hmm. and i think that's a very different strategy than what broadcast networks try to do in targeting a mass audience
1: well, exactly i mean you just said it right there broadcast audience go after everybody broadcast networks you know they're programming for both meat they're programming essentially so me, my mom, my dad, sister, my sister can all sit down and watch a show together.
0: But We're- at the same time, and there's 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 this great. A media economist uh, wrote back in the '90s that basically the idea that the broader the appeal, the less precisely it actually serves any one right. of those members. And so you know that has been the transition throughout the broadcasting cable era from you know what was called least objectionable programming the programming you could watch with all those people nobody really wanted to watch it but it was the one thing everybody could agree on mm. as opposed to what we have first in the cable era and then perhaps even more pronounced now in an era of portals where you really have narrow audiences being served with particular programming
1: So, and let's then get into kind of the Hulu and CBS All Access question. I mean, you classify CBS All Access as a studio portal. Are you, by your comment earlier, are you trying to put Hulu into that group as well? Because it has those multiple owners, basically everybody but CBS, which kind of created its own thing? Yes. So,
0: um, and I think we do have to talk about them differently. And at this point... If Hulu has a strategy, it's not clear what it is, but it has very much been, like, if we trace it back, in the late 2000s, the late first decade of the 2000s, as Internet-distributed television was just sort of percolating up, different networks had their own, if you wanted to see something, they told you to go to abc.com.
1: Right, and I think ABC was the first one to do that. I remember when that started to pop up.
0: They were all at about the same time. For the most part, they had very little... Uh, Current programming, for the most Mm -hmm. part, it was promotions and short video. And at that point, before audiences were used to watching television on anything other than a television, you know, that was a big reacculturation project that needed to happen. And so this idea of sending people to all these different places, the fact that the experience was so different in different places, I think the idea of Hulu to sort of pull it all together in one and build this this central library, that was a great idea. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I remember that's what brought me to Hulu in the first place. I mean, when I first heard of Hulu, you know, it was the late aughts and you know, I kind of went there because, oh, I've got everything but CBS there. And actually, that ended up, for me, making CBS shows harder to watch. I don't really yep. know quite why that was. But especially when I started, started college and stuff, it was like, well, CBS is over here. Mm-hmm. Everything else is over here. I'm having a hard time going over to that other place.
0: And so for the most part, what Hulu has been is, is just that repository for content owned by those studios. Right. Often a lot of it being driven by the ability to watch... What you'd normally watch on broadcast, but if you're busy, you can watch it on your own schedule, sort of mm-hmm. before the on demand services offered by cable systems became all that robust. So CBS and going it alone is really interesting to me. Um, and so I, I, they're the clearer example of a studio portal, um, they're using a strategy that if we were in class we'd call vertical integration right. um, by distributing their content themselves. And so what I'd is interesting about CBS All Access is that they mostly pr- promote the service in terms of its current shows. Mm-hmm. But if you look at their classics, it's really this interesting conglomeration because it shows that CBS owns. And before the mid 1990s, networks were not producing all of their content in-house, and so you have shows like Family Ties, which was on NBC, the original 90210, which practically launched Fox. Right. So if you look at the the past, you actually see that you know really what CBS is doing with this service is leveraging its library. Yeah. Now, what is so? What is the alternative? So. CBS could license that content to Netflix.
1: And for a cert- to a certain extent, they have.
0: Yes. And so, but what's the downside? Why go it alone? Why develop your own portal? And, and I think the answer there is, well, one, you're not sharing the distribution, the benefit of distribution. And I th- really think the big motivation behind CBS All Access has to do with data. And so CBS okay. is getting a sense of the value of those shows based on who's watching them, how much they're being watched. And they're they're starting to have a bit of that information that Netflix has grown very accustomed to already and has basically, you know, has been of huge advantage to Netflix in negotiating those licensing deals because Netflix knows exactly how many people have been watching a certain kind of content and how likely um, something that they want to license is to to be for them. And that's, That's a huge advantage in that negotiation.
1: And I wonder if, you know, some of the content that's shared between CBS All Access and other portals and other streaming services, I wonder if that's going to impact their negotiations. Because they say, they can either say, oh, we know how much show this value has, we're going to charge a lot for it. Or they can say, you know, this show might not have value to us, but it has value over here, so why don't we just sell it off?
0: Right, and you already actually see a version of that in how HBO has treated its programming in international distribution. So sometimes HBO will distribute its original programming on, let's say, the HBO Nordic or HBO of the market, but content that's going to be particularly valuable, let's say something like Game of Thrones, it actually might not go to the HBO provider in the region because they can sell it for more and license it to what effectively is a competitor in that market.
1: Yeah, absolutely. While we're talking about Hulu and CBS All Access, let's talk about the difference between the advertiser and the subscription model here, Mm. because Hulu uses a mix of advertiser and subscriptions, you know, back down to the free tier, and then the tier with limited ads, and then the tier with no ads, and CBS, I forget exactly what their tiers are, but I know the lower tier does have ads, you know, Mm. you pay money, and then Mm. you have ads on Mm -hmm. top of it, and Then there are the occasional portal like ABC's one that is completely advertiser-supported. It does seem to me that most of the major and successful portals that we talk about on a daily basis are these subscriber-based portals, and do you think that will be the focus?
0: At this preliminary stage, and even though Netflix has been in the market for quite some time, I think we still have to understand this as a preliminary stage. Right. As a business model, subscriber funding is so much cleaner and so much easier than adding another entity, the advertiser, and all of these questions about uh, metrics, about how valid the metrics are. And so what I mean here is, you know, are as many eyeballs showing up as, let's say, the network or service is claiming? Mm -hmm. um, How should we be crafting these deals? For the most part, there's been an effort to just kind of take what was the method for broadcasting cable and kind of fitted onto internet distribution that hasn't really been working. So I think we're seeing a lot of subscription right now because it, it, it it's just an easier model. I think in time it might be possible that some of these subscriber services develop an ad-supported side once sort of some things sort themselves out in terms of how advertising is priced, how it is purchased
1: well we talked about in our year review the struggle in digital advertising right now and right
0: most of that's in the in the print realm but it applies to video as well Um, but i think the the other thing that the book is really at its core wrestling with is is establishing an understanding of subscriber funded media and that's a conversation that's not particular just to this video realm of portals but increasingly print journalism or written written media, uh, so thinking about something like the New York Times going from being mostly advertiser supported to being mostly subscriber supported. Mm-hmm. When we think about Spotify and a lot of the music services, those two are developing subscriber funded versions that are well, particularly because important. because the
1: subscribers in all of those cases are so much more valuable to the service than somebody who, you know... I know Spotify, they make so much more money off a subscriber than they do off the person who sits there and listens to ads.
0: Right. And so this is, uh, you know, even though, let's say, you had, you know, let's say, growing up, a newspaper subscription or magazine subscription, mm-hmm. in most cases, the subscription that we've had to date, with the exception of something like HBO was actually a blending of advertising and a payment. So you received your newspaper, you paid for that, but most of the funding that supported that newspaper was actually the ads in those pages. So those media, even though we've used the word subscriber with them, they've really been conceptualized and driven by being an ad-based medium. And so this realm in which somewhat because of the affordances of internet distribution and the fact that its efficiency allows different signals to go to different people at a different time in a way that's very different than what broadcast and cable has done, it has enabled subscriber funding to be more central. And so we're really at the beginning of understanding the peculiarities of subscriber funding, um, both at a strategic level for businesses, you know, how do you maximize your value proposition what do you do but also in terms of well what are the consequences you know what what happens to society in which most media are subscriber funded what are the what are the consequences for creatives and these are all really big Im- important questions that that need much more research
1: you know some services you know, as i kind of talked about in the lead up to that other to the previous question are a mix of subscriber and advertising do you think that that's something that can hold do you think that you can have advertising in a subscriber service without these subscribers getting annoyed that they're paying all this money and then have to watch ads i mean it's it's a little bit different than say an ad in a newspaper because it's kind of very easy to gloss over an ad in a newspaper where if they're throwing the ad in front of you on cbs all access you can't skip it
0: right well i think part of it is you know that these services have added variability so if Seeing ads makes you irate. Uh, you can pay the 9.99 instead right. of the 4.99, uh, and you can move to that ad-free environment. And so, you know, I think this is—it has to do with the fact that different viewers. We all have a constrained amount of time and a constrained amount of money. Uh, And that leads us to different behaviors. And so Mm -hmm. um, I think, I recall, uh, oh, it's been a couple years, but I think Netflix was doing basically, you know, pre-roll for like a day before the entire Netflix universe just erupted in outrage. I I think I
1: remember seeing, oh, Netflix is doing pre-roll, and then it felt like a second later when it's like, nope, never mind.
0: And so I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the attractiveness of consuming television through a portal, it's not just about the content, but it is about the experience. You know, part of what makes Netflix valuable to viewers isn't just what show you can watch there, but the guarantee that you can have a certain kind of experience, that you have all the episodes there for you at once, You know, for that season, you can choose to consume them all in the course of a weekend, which actually very few people do, mm-hmm. um, or you can, just know that they're there, and you can choose to watch two tonight, and three tomorrow, and one the Tuesday after that if you want. But that that ability to choose, I think, is also a really important part about the success of of this form of distribution.
1: That's really interesting. And let's kind of talk about another aspect of the subscriber model, um, because we've had because we've had subscription in television for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, HBO yep. and Showtime, Stars, these are all subscriber based models mm-hmm. in. purely subscriber. Yes, purely subscriber, mm-hmm. the premium network. So, how does a portal differ from something like that? Especially, you know, because HBO gives you access, cable subscription to HBO gives you access to HBO Go, yeah. which is identical to HBO Now, which mm-hmm. I guess is what we would consider to be their portal. Or is HBO Go kind of... I mean, it's all starting to get convoluted at this point, but where does the difference lie?
0: So for a while now, I would say that Netflix has been most like HBO, largely because they are subscriber-funded. They are very much in competition for that reason. So the difference about between linear HBO is that it is confined to a schedule. It can only give you one thing at a time. Or um, if you've got a multiplex package with cable, then you know maybe you've got a few choices. Maybe you even have on a, a pretty decent on-demand selection also because of, of your cable operator. So HBO Go is just, you know, that was their first foray into a portal. At that time, Um, I remember as it came to market, um, the cable operators were falling all over themselves, basically thanking HBO um, and being very supportive because HBO had chosen to not separate the internet distributed access from the cable subscription. Mm -hmm. And so that was a good first step. It's 2010. Um, However, you know, within a handful of years, HBO also recognized that there were 10 million households out there that either had cut cable or were choosing to never have it, that might actually be interested in their content. And that's always been a big issue for HBO right. because of the role of the cable provider, the fact that you couldn't just subscribe to HBO. You had to subscribe to a basic package. And a basic package, often, you know, that could be 40 $60. And so... HBO recognized that there was an audience out there that might want its service, but might not want the whole cable kit and caboodle. And so I think HBO Now was really made available for that purpose. Not to cannibalize, not to take away from the linear service, but to recognize that in this environment in which viewers can access television in different ways, if you own content, it's really at your detriment to not be available to an audience, let's say, that didn't want a cable subscription. You really want your service available in as many different ways as possible. And especially if you are <laughs> subscriber-funded, right? You can make yeah. these choices, you can do these things because you aren't concerned about people watching, you know, with the ads within 24 hours.
1: Well, you don't, it's because you don't have these advertisers to answer to. You just essentially answer to your viewers, right?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there we go. That is the core difference. How do right. you judge success for advertiser support, you judge success in how many viewers that the advertisers want watched. You know, right. it's, it's a pure number. In subscriber-funded services, it's a little mushier. Right, You you need to provide enough value to your subscribers that they maintain the service, and you need to provide enough value that more people continue to come in than leave. And the way that you provide value isn't necessarily by providing shows that everyone watches all the time, but that you do provide the one thing that that subscriber says oh i can't get that anywhere else right mm-hmm. right now it, for me in hbo it's john oliver you know <laughs> i am paying a monthly subscription fee to hbo so that i can have john oliver every sunday just to help me get through the week is that the best you know if we do the cost benefit equation there that you know be... especially
1: given john oliver being on I... youtube well <laughs> well most of it most yeah. of it yeah, Not yeah all i need it. all of yeah. it
0: so, so there you go, um, and, and how that's different, let's say uh, John Oliver provides a different value proposition for the HBO audience than, let's say, Game of Thrones, because the Game of Thrones audience, let's say you could just show up for three months, do your HBO subscription, and cut back out. But as HBO tries to balance having some of these big shows uh, with regular programming, you know, these are all the parts of you know, what it means to, and the new strategies that come with uh, cultivating a library, um, that's different than scheduling a channel, which is really what has been the focus of the business until now.
1: Now, let, let's transition a little bit. Let's talk about exclusivity. And let's talk about kind of... That seems to be where these portals are going in terms of how they acquire their content. Do you think there can be not major non-exclusive deals? Like, do you think there can be something like the Seinfeld Hulu deal without that aspect of exclusivity? And... You know, tied into that, these sales look a lot like syndication, cable syndication sales.
0: Somewhat. And, so, and somewhat. Right. So
1: do you think these could be viable replacements as those deals dwindle?
0: <sighs>
1: that's Repl- kind of two yeah, loaded um, questions. No, but. I, I think
0: replacement is questionable um, in the sense of, is it dollar for dollar? I don't think right. that's clear. Um, and I think that's going to depend on the number of services in the in the marketplace. So yes, uh, I mean, exclusivity has always been, as you note, a strategy in in media industries. And in fact, in the the pre-internet distribution era, it it actually kind of worked better because access was so limited. There was really only one place you could get programming in a way that's just never the case now. But certainly, I think we see something like exclusivity in the form of, let's say, a Netflix original. That... What Netflix is doing when it spends $100 million on two seasons of House of Cards, that's not comparable to NBC spending um, whatever it spends on the first season of something. Because Netflix is investing in that property to keep in its library forever. Right. right? I mean, Uh, is
1: there any point where it would lose House of Cards?
0: Well, so House of Cards is a tricky case because... Uh, it, it was
1: the first deal. Yes, yeah. and
0: so they didn't actually have as exclusive of rights as they have developed with some of the later properties. But I think... So what's different is this shift in the, the long business of television. Right. The long business of television has always been about continuing to sell and resell in different markets, in different places, you know, on and on and on. You're getting less per deal as you go out over time, but that's how the big money has been made in television, You know, we're really looking at the internet distributed portals doing something different and building a, a lifetime library. Like it's not your first window isn't Netflix. You know, your window forever is Netflix. Mm-hmm. And so I think we've already started to see, again, some variation depending on the situation. So Netflix uh, did do some licensing deals with Narcos and a couple other of its properties. Yeah. I think they will do those deals as they make sense. Um, but certainly, you know, if, if Netflix had something like Game of Thrones, uh, no, the only place you would be able to get that forever is going to be Netflix.
1: Although, do they not have something like Game of Thrones? I mean, it's a very tough so. question because we don't have these ratings, these tangible numbers. I mean, you could think of something like Orange is the New Black
0: yeah, as their
1: Game of Thrones, but based on, you know, the very little kind of general question mark numbers that we've seen
0: exactly that and so until they show me numbers I, I i don't know that i'm going to believe that they have anything that is as much of a blockbuster head
1: i mean do you think they will ever show us numbers
0: when it serves them okay but i think
1: and do you or do you think they'll continue to make claims like there was one a while ago where he was like, oh, N- Narcos is as big of a hit as Game... Or a bigger hit than Game of Thrones without oh, the tangible backup.
0: Yeah. I, we may be in a quote-unquote post-fact society, but I don't think anybody was buying that. <laughs> uh, and what... Le- uh, yeah, no. Even if you can't, no. Anyway. But I think... And this raises actually another interesting point. For as much as the television industry has moaned and complained about Nielsen over the years, there has been a third party that has done the measurement. So... I think even if Netflix does start telling us numbers, why would we believe them straight up, right? The fact that in this environment, there isn't a third-party impartial service um, that is able to provide comparable numbers. Although,
1: can I play devil's advocate for a second? Because the third party will not have the specificity of the numbers that Netflix does. Because Netflix will know not only how many people are watching a show but who's watching a show who's in their mm-hmm. family how many members of that family are watching a show how long cause, so Netflix like we talked about earlier it has all this data mm-hmm. to the to the user yes like Nielsen never goes as far no. down as a single person
0: I'm not denying that 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 fine data isn't it's it's crucial to Netflix business model right. um and and you know there's no need to share all of that mm-hmm. I'm just saying that why would you why would we trust it why wouldn't we necessarily believe it and and that that's you know that's an aspect again about how this new era is different from the past when the data was you know validated and collected by someone without self-interest and we don't yet have that for the portal environment
1: and something else you talked about with ratings is obviously the lack of ratings affects the negotiations with talent with cast with crew because usually these negotiations are based on how successful shows are i mean do you think there's a point where netflix will be forced for the sake of negotiation to release these numbers to the creatives and so the creatives like let's say Uzo aduba wants a gigantic new deal and netflix is like it's not justified and they're like okay tell us why it's not just like yeah, you, i nah. can imagine that process kind of happening
0: well, it's certainly rewriting processes um, in right. terms of how Hollywood works. Um, you know, I've heard some, you know, unconfirmed or unsubstantiated discussion that in fact uh, that people are increasingly building some reporting of information from Netflix into deals, but I can't uh, substantiate that mm-hmm. at this point, and I don't know if it's overwhelmingly the process. Uh, again, I'd come back to, but why should you believe them? You yeah. know, the party that you're negotiating with, uh, and so. So yeah, this, this does very much change you know, the structures of power and how contracts are discussed, you know, renewals are discussed. Um, and that's another important aspect of the changing business and what that can mean for creatives and the shows that they make.
1: And because, as we said, the one window is Netflix. So how does that affect profit participation and back-end and all these other important aspects of these talent negotiation deals?
0: Right, so they're different deals. Um, and so, increasingly, um, the kind of deals that Netflix is writing, it's, it's not the conventional deficit financing situation where you do have a lot of points and back-end. That big number, let's say, again, that we saw for House of two seasons of House of Cards, $100,000, a lot of what that really is is that, as a creative, you are getting all your money up front. So, whatever you're going to get for working on that show as producer, director, talent, what have you, like, That's this is it. it. Yep, um, you're not going to keep getting the money for decades and decades. The Directors Guild just announced a new contract that restructures how they are paid for distribution on um, portals. Mm-hmm. Films are pre- distributed on portals, too. Um, and I'd expect that the other guilds will follow suit. And it's a much better deal, or it looked to be a much better deal than had been the case in terms of the way they had written them in the past.
1: And one more question related to creatives. You know, no, you mention in the book that no creative is tied to a particular portal right now. Mm-hmm. Do you think we could see something like that happening? I mean, especially with one, you know, I'm thinking about Netflix and Amazon, they're not connected to a linear production arm. Do you think that's something like somebody signing an exclusive deal with Netflix to produce Mm -hmm. content for them, like Adam Sandler, I guess?
0: Right. So there is an Amazon Studios, and Netflix has made a couple purchases in the last year that looks like they're two on their way to having a studio. but. Certainly. And I think, again, it comes down to sort of the uh, competition for talent. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whoever is the dominant showrunner of the moment, it's entirely possible to think about them being signed to a overall deal with one of the portals. um, And, you know, what the dimensions of that, whether it's the portal owns whatever they do, whether the portal gets a first look, you know, that's Mm -hmm. all up to... To debate, but it's certainly possible to see that kind of uh, integration between talent and a portal.
1: And one last question about portals. Like peak TV, do you think we'll have at some point peak portals?
0: In any emerging industry, you have at the onset sort of this abundance, um, sort of figuring out what is the terrain of the marketplace. And now I think you can ask any viewer who might be really excited about Netflix and maybe one other service that they subscribe to. But are they? Is anyone subscribing to all of these? Of course not. Uh, and so it will take some time to figure out. You know what is the right balance um, for the marketplace. You know, especially as people choose to leave big, expensive um, cable bundles, you know, maybe that allows you to subscribe to three or four of these. Um, maybe there is different behaviors than we've known. Maybe you aren't a Netflix subscriber all the time. Maybe you're a Netflix subscriber in the summer, and that's when you catch up on the stuff in that library, and then you, know, you move on to another. <laughs> but I think it's sort of the belief that in the same way that it was a mistake to believe that advertisers would pay for all of the content we ever wanted on for, distributed to us over the internet, it is similarly wrong to believe that, that there are subscribers out there with endless amounts of money that will be able to support all of these services. And so, you know, there are the the niche services that will only you know might be crucial for particular groups or demographics or you know, types of uh, content interest. Um, and then there's the business of these conglomerated niche services, which uh, I think are competing more against each other.
1: Now, do you do you have any closing thoughts on that you didn't mention earlier, mm. or something you know related to portals that you kind of want to leave us
0: mm. with? Uh, I think the other thing that's really fascinating and different about how portals are working that we haven't thought through is really the the different promotional strategies available to them. Uh, I think we've talked about this earlier um, in the course or in response to the interview Alan Seppenwald did with Ted Sarandos when Sarandos explained that when they launch a new show, even though they have 40 million U.S. subscribers, they don't push it to all 40 million subscribers. And again, it comes back to the different strategies available to them because they know who is their subscriber. They know what they watch. They are able to discern things about their tastes. Um, but even Sarandos' comment that, you know, the worst thing that can happen is negative word-of-mouth building. And so this very decided and strategic decision to not be mass, to not try to push this thing to everyone, but to maybe even, you know, under-promote something um, at the risk in, in, instead of over-promoting it in the wrong places. And, you know, that's just such a different approach than has been characteristic of of, broadcasting and even, you know, even cable channels, um, the, the focus at a cable channel is so, so lifetime back in the day, at least lifetime was television for women, but the strategy there was we want all the women or, you know, like what's more <laughs> successful, more women or more women and men. And so it's always been about more, more, more in this advertiser supported realm. And so this, this kind of constraint that we're seeing, um, in, subscriber funded services of being very deliberate and targeted is is fascinating to watch
1: all right you can buy amanda's book portals a treatise on internet distributed television on amazon or you can find it on mazebooks.org now we move into the last segment of each and every podcast what we're watching this week amanda what are you watching this week
0: I've been watching the reboot, or whatever it is, of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> so I, I'm halfway through. Um, so
1: you've watched two seasons?
0: Uh, or yeah, Yes, two seasons, yes. Uh, and I was a Gilmore Girls viewer um, in its original form, and so, I don't know, I, I think I felt a sense of duty to come and check in with the characters, um, and I certainly, uh, as a... Someone who knew a fair bit about the show also recognized that it didn't quite end the way that you know it should have if you were an Amy Sherman-Palladino fan. Uh, so I do want to I, I will pursue the final two seasons so that <laughs> I, I do have that ultimate closure. But uh, I also uh, agree with some of the reviews and commentary that I've seen about how it just it doesn't seem of this moment um, mm. in a way. And I think I think in almost every case of of the reboots that I've seen, uh, there's I'm initially excited because it's like an old friend returns, but then it's sort of like, oh, um, this old
1: friend has now just something's changed. About and maybe them. it's me. Yeah. It's maybe
0: it's me. Um, but um, yeah, I think the the notion of the the reboot that's a tough one. What are you watching, Alex?
1: Well, I spent my week between Christmas and New Year in London. Which means that I guess what I'm watching is I went and I saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is just a mesmerizing play.
0: Is it better than Hamilton?
1: It's different. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, did,
0: if, I just I, asked I, Alex to choose between his favorite children, basically. Yeah, no. It's
1: like <laughs> those are the two best things I've seen this year, and maybe one of the two best things two best things I've seen in a theater. I mean, First Child. <laughs> it sometimes feels like magic is happening in on that stage. Like they have some really beautiful effects like John Tiffany, uh, the director of that play. This, this is the third piece of theater I've seen by him. And he's now at my pantheon of top directors. Um, Stephen Hoggett and the frenatic some machines, I forget the na- exact name of his choreography studio. They did choreography. And so there were some, you know, dance esque movements on that stage. And, It was just a mesmerizing piece of theater. It was across two parts. So, you know, you went to an afternoon show, you had a dinner break, and then you went to the night show. And the afternoon show ended on just a spectacular moment. I feel like J.K. Rowling would come over and smite me if I didn't hashtag keep the secrets. (laughs) So I won't reveal too much about the story and kind of what happened, but it was just a beautiful piece of theater, a beautiful day. Just, I... You know, I understand where some of the criticisms are coming from. Like, a lot of Potter fans really don't like the story. They say it doesn't feel like Harry Potter. It doesn't make sense as Harry Potter. And I can imagine this not reading well, and especially not summarizing well, given what happens. But I think, quite frankly, it works in the medium it was meant to be. Like, if you're not seeing this in a theater, you are missing about 80% of the experience. Like, if you read the script, you're getting about 20% of what this show has to offer you. And... Yes. But what about the movie? Uh, I actually hope it never becomes a movie. I don't think it would work as a movie. I think, quite frankly, a lot of what makes it great on stage would make it look cheesy or stupid or dumb hmm. in on film. And I guess it's just a difference in mediums and, you know, a difference of what's magical on stage versus what's magical in a film. Like, if you see a book moving and talking, that's a fantastic on a stage. Yeah. That's commonplace in a movie. Yeah. That's not hard to do. It's not like, you know, you're dealing with a different degree of difficulty for some of these effects and some of these moments, but yeah.
0: So you're saying there's a talking book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Shh. Well, that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to listen to more Media Business Matters, including some prior podcasts where we introduced some of the ideas we expanded on here on Portals... Go to amandalots.com or search for us in the iTunes Store. Amanda, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At
0: Dr. DrTVlots, D R T V L O T Z.
1: And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex I N T N E R. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon.